Good morning, everyone. I would have to say I'm feeling at this point about 85 to 90% better, but I was the one out there coughing still. That's always the last part of whatever this is that's going around that I've got. And so I just said to a few people sitting out there, I'll be the one you'll be sitting through coughing for the next 30 minutes. And in between the coughing, we'll try to get some of the word of God in. How's that sound? Deal? Can we, can we do that together? And then the poor people listening on the internet, these may not be the weeks of the year to listen on the internet to kind of go, okay, preaching of the word and coughing, nice combination. Uh, one more time, just because I communicate over and over and over again, you are invited. I looked over there, Lori and Andrew, there's a lot of food. We love you a lot. And we love to eat. You know, there is no question. I'm not sure, is it one of the, I have to ask Rick sometimes, is it one of the spiritual gifts, eating? Because I don't know that I've read that in the Corinthians and Romans lists of spiritual gifts, but it seems like we do that very well. This is my way of saying uh, today is very bittersweet, but Lori and Andrew's last day with us here at Spruce Creek, and they'll head out. For those of you who don't know, Andrew has accepted a call to be the assistant pastor at Harvest PCA Church in Omaha, Nebraska, and we want to love them well. We want to wish them well. And so we'll be having a brief lunch after the service. We would love to have you join us. And so after we're done worshiping, we'll continue. I think it's actually a very good thing to do in terms of having that family meal together and joining together. So we hope you can join us for a little while after the service. Would you bow with me as we go to the Lord asking him to shape and govern our minds and our hearts by his word? <clears throat> Father, we come before you depending upon you to guide us, to open our hearts, to open our minds, to give us teachable spirits. We pray, Holy Spirit, you will be the teacher of your word. We pray, Father, that you would give us soft hearts. We pray, Father, that your word, which does not return to you empty or void, but accomplishes what you have willed it and purposed for it, would do a mighty work in our lives, creating in us a greater desire to love you and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. We're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark, and we are in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. And because we are reading together the Word of God, if you are able, I'd like to ask you to stand as I lead us in the reading of God's Word. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. <clears throat> and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him, and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Friends, this is the word of the Lord given by the triune God of love because he loves us. Please be seated. 
We've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and let me just remind us, review a little bit what Mark is all about. Mark's chapter 1, verse 1 says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so in his narrative, he is laying out for us what the good news is all about. And he divides his narrative basically into two halves, into two parts. The first half is looking at who is this king? Who is Jesus? So we see a lot of Jesus doing healings and his interactions. We see his personality. We see how he treats people. The second half, which is where we're kind of right in the middle of, Mark chapters 9 through 16, having seen who Jesus is, Mark is basically laying it out, answering the question, what is he all about? What is this king? What did he come to do? What is his purpose? What is his agenda? And we said his purpose was he came to die. He came to give his life for his people, to take upon himself the punishment that we deserve, our sins, Everything that we deserve, he brought upon himself. And it's an interesting thing as we look at it to ask the question, you have the gospel and you have what we could call events of the gospel. Jesus' life, his death that I just spoke of, his resurrection and his ascension. And whenever you have an event, something happened, an action, that action usually has a desired intention, a purpose, an outcome that you would like to see happen because of the intention. For example... Many of you know I am the least mechanical person on the face of the planet. Okay, there's handymen, there's people who know a little bit, there's people under them, then there's me. Okay, if I come with a light bulb, my wife is going like this. Okay, not a lot. So I have, if something's broken in the house, I usually take an action. You know what that action is? Hello? (laughs) I'm calling somebody. Usually it's Tim McClure. Where's Tim? I'm not sure where he is. A lot of times it's Tim. And so I'm calling. And with that, is an intent, there's an intention behind it. The intention is to have something fixed. Jesus does his events, his actions. He lives, he dies, he's resurrected, he's ascended. And there's an intention behind it. That intention is to create a family of people, his children, those that he's elected and adopted into his family to be a family of love, to be a covenant people of love, to be a people who would love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, all their strength, complete wholeheartedness. He wants to create a people who will love God and love others. The text we're looking at this morning, this morning's sermon is all about discipleship. What does it mean to be a disciple? a follower of Jesus Christ. In other words, what is a disciple? Because discipleship is what the church is all about. Jesus, just before his ascension, when he was meeting with his followers one last time, gave them that commission when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go, as you're going, make disciples of all nations. But what is a disciple? What is it we're exactly making? What is Jesus intending to make and to create when he calls us his disciples? Discipleship is all about love. There's one particular writer who writes this way. He says, what is it that you want? That is the fundamental question. He says, it is the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. It is the question that is buried under almost every other question Jesus asks of us. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, said... 
for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now think about that. Where your treasure is, what is a treasure? Treasure is something that is of ultimate importance to you. It is that what you prize the most. It is your treasure. It is that what you give ultimate allegiance to. You cherish it. You prize it. It's of number one priority. Jesus is laying a fundamental principle of the human heart when he says that which you prize the most, that which is most important to you, that which you're most devoted to, that which is your treasure, your heart's going to be there. In other words, you are what you love. You do what you want to do. Think about this in terms of another biblical example. After Peter denied Jesus those three times, Jesus died, was raised again. In John chapter 21, you have the account of Jesus restoring Peter. Jesus asks Peter three times, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John, do you love me? The same writer says to be human is to have a heart. You can't not love. To be human is to love. So the question is not whether you will love something as ultimate. The question is what you will love as ultimate. You are what you love. St. Augustine said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. Jesus is seeking to create a people with restored and reordered loves. What sin fundamentally does is disorder our loves so that we love created things as ultimate. And Jesus, in his work of sanctifying us, is reordering our loves. And this text, which is a discussion between an inquisitive scribe and Jesus, we learn two things about what it means to be a disciple. We learn, first of all, the necessity of love, and we learn, second of all, the dynamic of love. The necessity of love, love that is required. I want you to picture it this way, okay? If I was giving a visual, I'm not very good at the PowerPoint type stuff, so I'll I'll use my hands. How does that sound? Internet, again, won't get it, but you'll figure it out. I want you to picture like an inverted triangle, okay? The going down part, which is the hard news, is the love that is required. And that's when I beg you to stay. Don't leave after. It's not lunchtime after the first 15 minutes of the sermon. you got to stay for the second half, the upside of the triangle, to get the dynamic of love. What does God provide for us to grow in love? What is the dynamic that propels us in love? So the necessity and the dynamic of love. Look with me at the text. Verse 28. It says, one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? Let's take a look at this in context. So in verse 28, Mark tells us that the scribe had heard them disputing with one another. So in other words, he had heard the Pharisees and the Herodians challenging Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar. He had heard the Sadducees questioning Jesus denying the resurrection, trying to discredit and embarrass Jesus. He had heard these, what commentators call these controversy stories. And the text says he had heard Jesus' response to the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees, these various groups. And and Mark tells us that the scribe was particularly impressed with Jesus' answer. He saw that Jesus answered them well. 
this led him to approach Jesus with a question of his own. The question is, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, why would he ask, why would the scribe ask Jesus that particular question? Well, commentators tell us that a distinction is made between lighter and weightier, smaller and greater commandments, and that this was an inevitable feature of the piety of Judaism of that day, since it was traditional to speak of the 613 individual statutes of the law. He goes on to write, he says, Jesus' response then, rather than to say, okay, out of number 613, this is number 29, and that's number 47, Jesus doesn't approach it that way. Instead, his response goes right to the heart, goes much deeper than the distinction between small and great commandments, and shows that he understood the question to concern the overarching principle of law. For Jesus, the whole law is summarized in the will of God, which calls for the love, which is a whole-hearted response to God and to neighbor. Of course, Jesus bases his entire answer in the scriptures. First part of his answer is an allusion to something called the Shema of the Old Testament. My former professor Bruce Waltke at Westminster called this the most important verse of the Old Testament. He says, here's the heart of the Old Testament. Here is what is constituting Israel as a, na- as a nation. When in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Moses writes, Hear, O Israel. The word Shema is Hebrew for hear. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Then Jesus takes the second part of his answer from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, when he says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when Jesus, notice what's going on here. So when Jesus is answering the scribe, saying which commandment is the greatest, he's going back to the Old Testament. And you hear what he's saying? He is saying, I'm creating a people who will be the fulfillment. Everything that was written of the old, everything we were moving towards, the story that we were embodying and enacting is now being fulfilled in you, my disciples, the church, the family of God. You are the reconstituted, reimagined, fulfilled Israel. And as another writer put, the command to love God is an obligation which stems from his uniqueness as God and his gracious favor in extending his covenant love to Israel. The text says it is the Lord our God who is to be loved with a completeness of devotion which is defined by the repeated phrase all. Notice how many times in the text it says love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This commentator says, since God claims the whole man for himself, there's no part of us he doesn't love. He claims all of us, body and soul, for him. To love God in this way, then, is to come from the whole man. Notice that our love for God is both relational and holistic. Relational because it's defined by the covenant. It says the Lord our God. You know what the heart of the covenant is? says that God is our God and we are his people. He is our God and we are his people. And that covenant love makes it a relational love, makes it a personal love. And obviously, love for neighbor is relational. And even though the Leviticus verse singles out sons of people, let's not forget when we get to the New Testament, 
Luke chapter 10, the famous parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that we cannot draw hard and fast distinctions around who our neighbor is. When like the Levite and the priest, we're making excuses. Well, wait a second, we don't have to love that person. We don't have the, what is Jesus answering the question, who is my neighbor? Throws out the distinctions, and so the law is fulfilled in love for neighbor. In fact, the application question, if you want to ask regarding any situation, any interaction you might have is, what does love require? What does love require in this instance? What does love require in this interaction? What does love require here? And notice that love is holistic. Jesus makes clear we're to love with our whole being, our whole heart, will, mind, and strength. There is to be no compartmentalizing our devotion and allegiance and love to God. We are to love him with our whole selves. There's no, well, I came to worship. I loved him on Sunday. Doesn't matter what I do Monday through Saturday. We are to love him with our whole being, our whole selves. And before I move on to the next point, let me just show you, even though Jesus is alluding and he's using Old Testament texts to make his point, this is something that we see throughout the New Testament scriptures as well. Galatians chapter 5, which we read in our scripture reading earlier in the service, says, for you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covenant, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And just to give you one more passage as kind of a rough sampling, I could keep going, but just a rough sampling, Jesus' words to his disciples in John chapter 13 when he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Francis Schaeffer called that verse the mark of the Christian. He actually wrote a book on it. And isn't it interesting how Jesus says that our love for one another in the church is to be part of our missional witness to the world around us that the world can observe and the world can see the quality, the depth, the way we listen to each other, the way we understand, the way we are able to come out of ourselves to meet the needs of others, the way we are able to be a family together and be committed. It's our love that makes our witness plausible. That is our love for one another that is going to be used by Jesus to show the world we really are Jesus' followers that we belong. So our love in that sense is a diagnostic. It's a demonstration. It's never the ground for belonging to Jesus, but it's that which evidences that we belong to Jesus. Inverted part of the triangle. How are we doing? Y'all stayed. Thank you. I'm glad I saw nobody run out because I haven't given you the good news yet. 
I get really worried at this point when I kind of preach a bad news, good news sermon, because I'm like, I don't want anybody just to hear the bad news and go, oh, and that's it. But I do want you to hear the hard news. That this is a requirement, this is the greatest commandment, this is the sum of the law, that we're accountable to this. I want you, I want this to press in on you a little bit. You see, notice I'm rocking back and forth a little bit, makes me a little uncomfortable. I hope you're on, please join me in this discomfort over the word of God. This is not easy. So what is the dynamic of love? What is the dynamic of love? See, we're required to love. It's the great commandment, and we don't do it. In fact, we can't do it. So how are we going to grow in love, especially if we are built and created to love? And I understand, let me just kind of point out first, I understand that we can't do it, but one of the things I feel like I need to say this to us Reformed Presbyterian types, because I think sometimes we look at total depravity and the fact that we can't do it, and that's true, but I think we camp there. We stay there, and we're like, I can't, I can't, I can't, and we, and we stay there, and we get stuck. And we never apply the dynamic of, oh, Holy Spirit, to help us actually grow into what God is causing us to become in his sanctification of us. So I want to challenge us, don't get stuck in, I can't, move into the dynamic of love. I quoted earlier from Galatians chapter 5, and earlier in that passage, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Let me break that down a little bit. Circumcision which was that which a Jewish person based their identity on. It's what made them Jewish. It was their identity marker. And obviously the flip side is uncircumcision would be that which made you a Gentile. So that's the whole, you're either a Jewish or Gentile. That's the whole human race right there. But notice God's perspective on it. He says, that which the Jewish person bases their identity on, that which the Gentile person bases their identity on, counts for nothing. And that word count means irrelevant. Almost like God saying, I don't care. It's like taking your performance, your achievements, your heritage, your work, taking all of that and throwing out God saying, it doesn't matter to me. It's irrelevant. He says the only thing that counts is faith working or expressing itself through love. Now we say faith. Faith in what? Faith has to have an object, and the object is Christ. Faith in Christ's love demonstrated for us, expressed in his life and death and resurrection for us. Faith in Christ becomes the engine, the dynamic that propels love. And the dynamic is the more we understand, the more we're gripped by, the more we're galvanized by, the more we're filled with his love for us, the more that that becomes the engine that propels our love our growing love for him and for others. I think the best biblical illustration that I can give from this comes from the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 50. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus, Luke tells the story of a particular Pharisee. He even names him, Simon. We don't get the name of Pharisees too often, but we get the name of this one, Simon the Pharisee. 
and he's asking Jesus to join him for a meal. Now understand how, important, how significant this is. Simon's a genuine seeker and inquirer because a meal is a very relational, communal thing, something to establish relationship. Simon wants Jesus to come over and share a meal with him. And as they're eating a woman, and the text tells us that she's a sinner, and if the text points that out, that doesn't mean she just sins and falls short of the glory of God, folks. That means we're talking hard-boiled, notorious sinner. Okay, a real live sinner. Barges in, uninvited. Simon did not lay out and send her an invitation three weeks prior saying, please come to my dinner party that I'm hosting for Jesus. She comes in and she's carrying an alabaster flask of ointment. She's showering affection on Jesus. She's weeping. She's wetting his feet with her tears. She's proceeding to let down her hair, to wipe his feet with her hair. She's anointing Jesus with the anointment, with the ointment. Simon's completely offended by this. He's taken back. He says to himself, now I love this, he says to himself, so he's not so bold to, you know, he thinks Jesus can't understand what's going on in his mind. So he says to himself, if this man, big shot over here, were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him. He couldn't handle the touching, for she is a sinner. And Jesus proceeds to rock his boat because he tells Simon a story. Reading from the text, Jesus says, Simon, I have something to say to you. I get to this point, I'm always shocked at this point of the text because Simon doesn't seem to get it because he just kind of opens the door and says, oh, say it, teacher. You don't get you're about to be rebuked here. Jesus says a certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When neither one of them could pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answers, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. Jesus says to him, Simon, you've judged correctly. Then turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Look at what Jesus is doing here. He says to Simon, look at this woman. See how she loves. Now, all this... She was doing the expressions of love in her culture. We wouldn't do it exactly the same way. But Jesus is saying to Simon, look at the evidence. Look at the love. She's loving me with all her heart, all her soul, all her mind, all her strength. What she understands about me, she is responding in love. And we see the dynamic of love and that her loving is not the ground her loving is not the cause of forgiveness, for that's Christ alone, but her love is the demonstration. It is a response. It is the evidence that she knows how much she has been forgiven. And she knows at a depth level. Thus, she's able to have a security and come out of herself because she knows how much she is loved and accepted and approved of and declared right by the Lord of Lords and King of Kings. 
And of course, the flip side is he who's forgiven little loves little. He who loves little is unaware at a functional level, still might be a Christian, but at a functional level, pretty ineffective Christian, because they're unaware of how much they are loved and forgiven. One preacher that I was listening to on this said the dynamic goes this way. They put it this way. They said, what is brilliant about this is that there are two people who both owe money, but the important point is neither one of them can pay. So they're both going to lose anything. In those days, that would mean you go to prison. Today, it might mean you declare bankruptcy. And he says, here's what's so brilliant about this is that it doesn't matter how far into debt you are. If you have nothing, if you have no resources to pay, it doesn't matter how bad a life or how nice a life you've lived. Everybody owes and no one can pay. And he illustrated it this way, and I love this illustration. I wish I could say I made it up, but can't do that. He says, if a poison spider bites you in your sleep so you never wake up, you die. Or if a lion comes in and mauls you and tears you apart, blood and guts and gore everywhere, dismembers you, decapitates you, and you're dead. Who's more dead? (laughs) Equally dead. He says, one's pretty dead, one's ugly dead, but dead is dead. And he goes on to make the point, he says, now Simon is pretty dead, and he's the person with the 50, and the woman is ugly dead, and she's the person with 500, but the gospel is through the cross of Jesus Christ, the debt, the record of debt of both is canceled, completely canceled. Look at how this fleshes it out, fleshes out in the life, the response. He goes on to say, look at this woman, what does she get? She gets an ability to love that she didn't have before. When he says she is forgiven because she loves much, he says if it wasn't for that second clause, the first clause would be very misleading because it can look like it's saying that the reason I've forgiven her is that she is so loving. That's not the case. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying if you look at the second clause, the second clause says he who has been forgiven little loves little. What it is really saying is your love is a response, is an evidence, is an overflow to how deeply forgiven and loved you see yourself to be. He's saying here's the principle, here's the dynamic. Your ability to love people, your ability to love God, your ability to biblically love, which doesn't mean the feeling love, it means to come out of yourself so that you're not even thinking about yourself, aware of yourself. You have the ability of seeing, entering into, and meeting the needs of what the person has is completely due to how deeply you see yourself forgiven and loved. If you don't see yourself to be at the same time a wretched sinner and a completely forgiven sinner, you will not be able to love God or people. Do you understand that this is the message of the gospel? That this is the message of the New Testament? Jesus' answer to the scribe's question, which is the greatest commandment, is that he is creating a new people, a reimagined people, a people who will be, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, a family of love, a school of love, loved by him, as I have loved you, Jesus says. 
How deeply aware are you? How deeply do you sense and do you know at a functional gut level that you are loved so that you can be secure? You don't have to be defensive. You don't have to be right. You come out of yourself to love other people. Paul wrote to Timothy, the aim of this charge. Think about his words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. The aim, in other words, the reason, the purpose, the direction, the telos, the intention of the charge I give you is love. It doesn't get better. It doesn't get greater. It doesn't get more. The aim of this charge is love that issues, that comes from, is propelled by a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. The dynamic of love is how much you know yourself. Mind, heart, will, affections, know yourself to be loved. How deeply do you see yourself and really functionally feel yourself to be loved? We love because he first loved us. Friends, that's the gospel. That's what a disciple is. One who through Christ is growing in love. And that's what a church is to be. A church is to be a school of love. We're making a school of disciples learning to love God and love others because we have been loved and forgiven by God through the cross. Father, I pray that we would be that school of love, that we would learn how to be disciples, learn how to love. I ask, Father, that you would continually teach us that we would learn and come under your word. Father, I thank you, Holy Spirit, for teaching us today. In Jesus' name, amen.